typically chaos. Sheer chaos, just screaming. And we're back with another episode of East in the Arena, where we talk about unique things that trauma providers across the world are doing, how they do them, and why. My name is Sean Murley, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Mike Radomsky and Jeremy Levin. We had the wonderful opportunity to sit down with Chance Spaulding from Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Chance Spaulding, what a guy. The whole discussion with him is super interesting for all the stuff he's doing with Roboa because like, it's not a universally accepted thing to do in the trauma community. Yeah, despite the fact that it's been around since the 50s, it hasn't quite gained traction. I will tell you that the dedication to it has been really impressive because he single-handedly was able to bring this entire program to a community hospital setting and now become one of the highest utilizers of it across the country. You know, I never would have guessed that based on the way he spoke because he was so very humble about it. I could tell that he developed such an amazing program that's been running for so long, but still they're continuously learning from their successes and mistakes. Yeah, I think that thread definitely shows through everything that he said. All right, let's dive right into it. Let's hear from Chance. I'm Chance Balding. I'm a trauma surgeon, acute care surgeon, uh, and surgical critical care at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Like most of us at at East, uh, I kind of do three of those things, trauma being my area that I um, most passionately enjoy. And I've been attending for seven years, going on eight. So they started their Reboa program way back in 2016. I thought, hey, we're just going to kind of plow through this. We're smart trauma surgeons and it took a lot to get off the ground. So, so we've been going now for six years, steadily growing over time. We're pretty busy, so we get a lot of patients that roll through. So we also get a frequency of use that I think allows us to continue to become comfortable with it. Uh, so I think both the mix of time and then the volume of those patients coming in has allowed our center to, to feel a little bit more robust. Like most other trauma programs that want to try something new, they were uncomfortable with the idea of using this new technology. It was just this catheter and this balloon. We did respect everything else. And then we, we took a couple knocks. We've had some injuries that, that are maybe unexpected. And so we were using this on patients who were nearly in arrest. We were doing exactly what the rest of the country was doing, I think, comparing it to resuscitate for academy and say, okay, we're going to have this, we're going to replace this thing. They used it how I think most people, including myself, used it, which was probably the wrong patients. Or maybe we didn't even know who the right and the wrong were. We just had this new toy and we used it without fully understanding maybe its application. What do you guys think? Like when Reboa first came out and I was introduced to that, I thought the same thing, that this replaces resuscitative thoracotomy. I think that's the way it was initially looked at. And so when you are comparing getting an A-line and putting up a balloon as opposed to cutting into somebody's chest really quickly – you know, that was the argument is why would I use a Reboa when I can get into their chest much quickly? But I think that's the wrong application. And I think that's one of the points that Chance was alluding to. And on the converse, it sounds much more appealing for a litany of reasons. Like, oh, all I have to do would be float a catheter and place a balloon and I don't have to do a thoracotomy. You could very much make the argument that that's more appealing than doing a thoracotomy. If the patient survives, you don't have to deal with the problems of a thoracotomy and all the sequelae that come from that. Temperature loss and like potential exposure to staff, to risks, complications, stuff like that. 
During that first year when they started Reboa, Chance told us that their Reboa mortality was about 70%. Not too surprising. We were putting it in mostly patients who are pulseless. Sounds right. Yeah, sounds about right. And then they made one big change. Because people became more comfortable with uh, putting uh, access in groins, putting sheaths in, and putting balloons up. We started to intervene on patients who had a little bit higher blood pressure. Like it wasn't in the 40s, it was in the 70s. We started to do it physically earlier in time in the trauma bay. And so earlier interventions with those patients, our mortality started to kind of fall in the 40s to 30 range, all comers for our second uh, year of Reboa use. So if I'm hearing you right, then uh, the Japanese data was right, right? Like everyone criticized Japanese data. They're putting in a bunch of live people. But, um, and I was myself, right? I read that stuff was like, well, yeah, of course it's going to work if you put it in someone that doesn't need it. Um, but it sounds like maybe it's whether you do it based on whatever systolic they were doing it or somewhere in the middle, it's probably going to work better if it's not on a dead person, which has been mostly my experience. We do a lot of early common femoral access. The reason is I think it's useful, but it also preps us for those patients. So we're basically always prepping for this patient who could potentially be very, very ill. That's actually a surprising statement to me. He's not hanging his hat on, oh, we put up a bunch of Reboas. We're very quick to Reboas. It's more of we're quick to A-lines because that is the barrier to doing a Reboa quickly if needed to. That's a huge paradigm shift that you've seen. When I learned trauma as a resident, you never actually need an A-line in the trauma bay. Why would you need one? You should be able to tell if the patient was sick and needs to go to the operating room. And I think... The advent of Reboa has liberalized some of that technology. If you would have told me that six, seven years ago when we started, that was hypocrisy that we did not put arterial lines in the trauma bay. It was a whole new kind of setup for us. So I've got a question for you guys. As trauma centers transition to earlier proactive care, what are some of the barriers that make it hard to place an arterial line in the trauma bay? And there's so many things that go into that, whether you're talking about being able to cannulate the common femoral artery and not so much the superficial femoral artery, you know, using ultrasound guidance for that, having perhaps a junior resident involved in that aspect or even your senior resident and somebody that's, a, that's hypotensive uh, is much more difficult. And then there's an entire realm of nursing education that goes along with setting up an emergent A-line uh, I don't know about you guys, but in the trauma bay, you know, getting an A-line is can be quite difficult. Uh, and then zeroing it and making sure that it's working correctly and making sure it's not clotted off. Uh, all those things come, in, come into this. Ultimately, though, we want to be proactive for our patient. We don't want them to die before we can do anything about it. And that seems to be Chance's philosophy as well. We wouldn't tell pre-hospital providers not to place the tourniquet and tell the patient to rest. They're like, no, you see it, it looks bad, let's put a tourniquet on. We're most certainly doing the same thing with Reboa at our center as we're trying to, to proceed in that direction, um, getting on these patients before they decompensate. Something happens, I mean, we all do trauma, right? Someone, they have injuries significant enough and they're hemorrhagic shock that they show their hypotension to you. And we're like, you know what? Let's just challenge this and give them a couple units of blood and see what they do. And you know, sometimes they respond, but like they've proven these injuries are really, really significant. Yet we're still really hesitant to kind of jump on them and start to do intervention to maybe slow it down. And then we sometimes get surprised when they, you know, code in the scanner. Like that probably shouldn't be shocking to us. Um, and so we're trying to pull ourselves away from that old paradigm. 
the concept I think he's trying to relay is um, there's a lot of things we do as reactionary and trauma because it's because we're forced to, right? No one is proactively doing a thoracotomy on someone who doesn't need one. I, I, I never like, hey, Jeremy, bite this stick and then cut your chest open now. Thoracotomy is a reaction to someone losing pulses, um, you know, depending what the criteria are on. But we know from prior studies, if your patient comes in hypotensive, you transfuse them. It's, you're assuming they're bleeding till proven otherwise. You be proactive about that. The trauma mindset is be proactive where it's meaningful to be proactive. And I think that's the point he's trying to make with Rebola too. If you're on the proactive side, maybe you can avert disaster. Okay, real quick. Let's talk patient selection. How do you choose who gets a Reboa? Do you let physiology guide it or do you guys have any mechanism criteria? Yeah, we let physiology drive it. The mechanism is not as much of a driver for us with the exception of things like penetrating chest trauma. We're both penetrating and blunt. I know that there are centers that are like, nope, it's, this is not for penetrating trauma. Um, the, the concern, I think, in my mind with a penetrating injury is that you're going to go out the aorta. How many times do we actually have a true aortic injury and penetrating trauma? Like it, it's, it's pretty rare. We typically have the same stuff that's injured. We have this big liver injury. We have mesenteric injuries. We have things that are clearly bleeding, but I have not had a balloon float out of the aorta yet. Um, and I've only put it in one true aortic injury, mind you, but we have a lot of venous injuries, a lot of reasons why patients are hypotensive. So we still go through and use it for both. I'll tell you just for an anecdotal N of two, I had one penetrating infrarenal aortic injury that I float a Reboa and it did not float out of the aorta. Yeah. So, uh, we have a case series going. If they come in arrest, they're not going to get a Reboa. If they already have a common femoral arterial line and they have an injury that is reasonable for Reboa placement, uh, they will get a Reboa if they arrest. I think this is Megan Brenner's data. If I don't already have access, it takes me longer to do a Reboa. So we will, we will favor the thoracotomy in that setting. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Once you have an A-line in? Yeah. I think once you have an A-line in, you can absolutely get a Reboa in before you crack the chest and get it. Yeah, as somebody who does a lot of video review for research, I can tell you that it does take a lot of time to get to cross-clamp, upwards of four or five minutes sometimes from incision to cross-clamp. But damn it, I can get in the chest in 90 seconds and cross-clamp, says every trauma surgeon, including myself. <laughs> but no, you're right. It takes longer. I don't care who you are. It takes longer than you think from incision on skin to cross clamp. The other thing that complicates it is a lot of times you're teaching people like me, fellows or residents. I don't know how you guys are at your institutions, but I don't cut the skin for a thoracotomy. Yeah. Or if I'm doing it, it's literally because there's nobody else around. Yes. Most of the time it is the resident that is doing that and I'm standing next to them telling them what to do. All right. So like many of our listeners, I'm a very practical guy. I like to know the nitty gritty steps of how things get done. Tell us about what's going on in your trauma bay when a hypotensive patient comes in that could be a candidate for Reboa. Uh, typically chaos uh, <laughs> is, is, is you know, sheer chaos, just screaming. Um, no, I think in the beginning, it was a little bit like that. We did some trauma bay video reviews. You look at your videos and you see that essentially what happened is time stood still. The trauma surgeon would be down there getting access in the groin. There's nothing like a sick patient and you're sitting there poking needles in, in, in a groin it makes, to make you feel like you're doing something to waste time. 
but really nothing else would happen. They would maybe be getting blood, but they wouldn't be getting any other procedures and chest like care wasn't advanced and beyond Reboa. I don't know about you two, but I have definitely both uh, A, experienced the time suck of doing any procedure in the Bay and the room stops because you lose situational awareness and B, suffered through watching myself do that on a video review <laughs> and like involuting into my soul. Yeah, it really makes you cringe as you watch yourself trying to get that line in. You just look at yourself and you're like, that big idiot, what are they doing? Yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly humbling. No, that's not like that. If I have a patient who I'm considering a Reboa in, I will quickly push people out of the way, chest x-ray, pelvic x-ray, fast, like as, as quickly as I can possibly get them in there. We have overhead mounted x-ray, so I'll, I'll kind of have them be ready as the patient's rolling in. If I have an inkling that it's a Reboa candidate. Chest x-ray that is not consistent with um, a cause of their hemorrhage would lead me to believe that that might be a Reboa candidate. Uh, positive fast goes into zone one. Only positive pelvic goes into zone three. I didn't quite understand that part. Can one of you guys clarify how he's using the chest x-ray to determine if a patient is a Reboa candidate? I always get nervous about putting Reboa if I haven't triaged the chest because I don't know if they have a thoracic aortic injury or a major vascular injury in the chest. And it just gives me pause to thread a balloon up there, inflate it, and then maybe make bleeding up there worse. Well, I think the other thing is Reboa is used for torso pelvic hemorrhage. So if you have a large hemothorax, you have a source of hemorrhage. That patient might not need a Reboa. That patient needs a chest tube and blood product transfusion. The access is obtained typically by residents uh, or APPs. We have some advanced practitioners down there that help as well. And that's the four French kind of micropuncture. We encourage ultrasound use. If you look at our data, uh, about 60% of the time ultrasound is being used. And a lot of time it's not. I think that is congruent with like uh, you know, university down in New Orleans as well. We think it's a good idea, but it doesn't actually happen in, in, in practical purpose. I was asleep during this entire conversation until Chance brought up ultrasound. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, as the ER guy, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that he really highlights ultrasound use and how important that is, especially when it comes to upsizing your catheters. Yeah, when you're upsizing, you don't want to be in the SFA. You need to be in the common femoral artery uh, to decrease the risk of ischemia to that leg. And so... You know, if you have the tool right there, I don't see why you wouldn't use that tool. Then in our center, the trauma surgeon's putting in that that line, they're up, upside the sheath, and they're putting in the, the uh, Reboa, or they're doing it with a, a senior resident. So in the very beginning, solely only trauma surgeons did it. But now I have all my chief residents do it with me. Uh, I have my trauma fellows do it with me. Um, when they're down there because I'm more comfortable with it. It's just like, you know, I'm sure the first time someone does a lot of coli, it's like over time, you feel much more comfortable. So you're going to let your residents do it. So now we have more residents placing these uh, devices. When I do Reboa, I have my residents intimately involved. Once you're familiar with the procedure, there's nothing special about upsizing to a sheath and floating up a balloon that you've already measured out. It's a super low risk procedure. Yeah, as a first-year fellow, I've had the opportunity to place two Reboas so far. The learning curve is really not that steep, and a lot of young trauma trainees have been exposed to it either through didactics or dedicated Reboa course, or we talk about it on morning rounds. So I think it's great that trainees get to participate in placing these. The first time you're placing a Reboa shouldn't be on the patient that's dying. The first time you place it should probably be in a sim lab. 
Oh yeah, absolutely agreed with that. It has its small little nuances that I think you need to be exposed to that are just not able to be explained upon. Trauma is a team sport. So what about our nursing colleagues and pharmacists? How are they involved? When we are going to put an A-line in, the nurse has a A-line, a tubing bag prepped and spiked. So they're kind of ready for us. If I say that I'm going to do a Reboa, then they automatically go through and get another bag ready for me because our, our new set, we have two. Uh, lines that we need to use. And then nicely, the pharmacist at the same time is drawing up 30 cc's of saline for me to give it to me. So we don't use contrast. So it sounds like really the whole room revolves around doing this procedure and allowing the surgeon to proceed with it. And then when we looked over time, now the last 10 Reboas that we've done, uh, there's a lot of overlapping procedures happening. Someone's hooking up the monitor, they're getting the stuff, they're packaging the patient. Uh, They're putting a chest tube in, they're giving blood products, someone's still working in the femoral line. Uh, So there's a lot of things that are still happening in in, um, coordination with that Reboa, instead of having to be in isolation. When we first started this, when we put the balloon up, the patient looks better. You could literally like hear the exhale in the room, like, ah, and like everyone would just slow down. Because they look fine, right? There's this little device they're growing and they look okay. And you had to, to remind the team that they like they needed to keep it cranking. They needed to keep hurrying up. Uh, and for new centers, the delay to the operating room because things just kind of slow down for a second is, is real. This is where my cynic comes in, right? Because I feel like there's a potential pitfall of being lulled into being able to take a patient to CAT scanner with Reboa, which I've done. And there have been times where it's been great. But it may be the wrong call. I feel like you might get a little bit of a false sense of security there. That's a patient. You may be better served just going to the OR and not wasting that time. I think there are some patients where it makes sense and other patients where it it absolutely doesn't make sense, even if it gives you a good pressure. Yeah, this is where the nuance comes into play because I'm willing to bet you you took somebody that had a, a traditional ER rubella, right? Correct, yeah. Whereas with the partial occlusion... Mm. You're getting distal perfusion, man. I, I mean, there's a there's a nuance there between the two. Since we're talking about these devices, can you guys explain the difference between the regular ER Reboa and the P Reboa Pro? Great question, Sean. Um, <laughs> the ER Reboa is just complete occlusion. The balloon blows up, all blood flow distal, that balloon stops. It's the equivalent of an internal cross clamp. And so when you put that up, it's for complete redirection of blood flow to the heart and the brain, complete cessation of blood flow, anything below the balloon. And the P. Reboa Pro? P. Reboa Pro is a second generation device that has a more compliant balloon that has channels that allow it to keep distal perfusion. And you actually measure a proximal and a distal blood pressure via A-line. So you, you actually are able to tell whether you're getting distal perfusion or not. So we just talked about the two main devices that most centers use, but there are a couple other options available. I've used the Coda balloon in fellowship, which was a big 14 French teeth cut down. That was was hard. We ended up using the Amplatz wire. Being not a vascular trained, you know, surgeon, general trauma, I did not feel extremely comfortable with that. Uh, Certainly required your arterial repair. And on the other side of the size spectrum... The cover device, which is on a four French platform. And so the balloon actually goes to that four French sheath. We don't use a wire uh, to, to get in um, through that balloon. Uh, for what it's worth, the prime time system, you can put a wire through it if you want to. 
if you have vascular surgeons or IR docs that want to go through and put a, a catheter in and take your balloon out, then they can. Okay, so we've talked about putting a Reboa in, what options we have, but what about removing it? The removal process. I personally, as a surgeon, always remove it. Uh, I remove it when, when the, I don't need it any longer. It's typically when I'm done with the case that that balloon's coming out. There's a technique to pull down any balloon. It doesn't matter which system you use. Follow that technique and guidance and, and get that, my advice to get the catheter out. Uh, if we have a balloon up in zone one for 60 minutes, full occlusion, Maybe we should be pre-treating them with something. Uh, you know, should we have a, a, a balloon down cocktail that we administer with anesthesia before we take that balloon down? When it's zone three, probably not. When it's zone one, probably. Uh, should we be giving bicarbonate fluids? Maybe. I think the idea of a balloon deflation cocktail makes a lot of mm. sense. And there was a recent paper published in Journal of Trauma about that very idea that a cocktail can be administered before balloon deflation to prevent all the sequela of reperfusion injury and redistribution of your blood flow. So that makes all the sense in the world. It's funny you mentioned that because one of my attendings is working on that very problem. So we might have an answer soon. I mean, I think it matters whether you're talking about full occlusion versus partial occlusion, though. Fair point. What I do is I tell anesthesia. I go through and hope that we have a, a, a gas that is pretty recent. We want to see what the resuscitation status is, and we kind of gently back that down, uh, see how they respond, and then we'll continue to, to you know, pull that as we can. And then they'll check a gas pretty quickly afterwards. But I think we get more and more concerned about it with zone one complete occlusion versus zone three or partial occlusion. But now we still have that sheath left in place. Some of the pitfalls that Chance mentions about the introducer sheath are leaving that sheath in after the ruboic catheter comes out, not flushing it, and then not leaving it hooked up to an arterial line transducer. Then that sheath just unfortunately gets forgotten about. That's not hard to do when you think about it. You have all these other things going on in this patient. They get to the ICU, the ICU rounder the next day comes in and realizes, wow, the sheath is still in and it's not hooked up to anything. It really sets up an environment for kind of microclot formation, complete occlusion of the SFA, um, and, and, and getting a, a distal extremity that's going to be ischemic. So at Grant Medical Center, they get a TEG or an ACT to make sure the patient isn't coagulopathic. If that's normal, then the sheath gets pulled in either PACU or the ICU. And this is the same thing that we've adopted because of IR and vascular surgery. That that's the normal process that they go through. So we decided, hey, let's do the same thing with our patients. Other people will say, why are you even pulling this in PACU? Pull it in the OR. Um, use, use a vascular closure device. I don't know a trauma surgeon that's not a trauma vascular surgeon that's comfortable enough with these closure devices to feel like we're going to be able to manage this appropriately. There's not a snowball's chance in hell I'm using a vascular closure device. I would mess it up so bad. <laughs> All I hear is horror stories. About <laughs> what it goes wrong. This is something that you cannot relegate to residents and sign off. This is something that remains in the realm of the trauma surgeon to remove that sheet. There's nothing worse than you get a patient through the OR, their injuries, their Reboa time, you put it down and then... They have to go back to the OR because now they have an ischemic leg. That sounds awful.
So to wrap things up, Chance, tell us about your PI and QI process. How do you guys maintain as a Reboa center of excellence? <laughs> so we do. Uh, we used to have a more formal process in the very beginning when we first started. I used to be myself, uh, associate uh, medical director and the medical director of our, our program uh, to review all those cases. And you know, we weren't being really strict about it necessarily, but we were like reviewing indications. Like, did we do it for an appropriate indication? Did we go for another complication? And then if we did, we would kind of circle back to understand uh, you know, what had happened. Over time, we continue to, to keep that book and keep it there. I do the reviews myself now. Uh, I should probably have somebody else review my own cases. Chance has never had a failure. <laughs> sure, your case is oddly there's no there's no uh, room for improvement. <laughs> yeah, I know. But uh, we have a, a peer group that we review a lot of these cases just within our entire kind of 13 trauma surgeons. Um, not in a systematic way, but I, I think it would be highly advised uh, if you're starting out as a new program to do that. So if we were to do it in a more systematic way, what do you guys think are the most important metrics we should be looking at? If you could have your druthers, Jeremy, what would you want? Certainly indication makes sense. Outcomes like mortality obviously makes sense. But I, th I think there's other stuff like benchmarking of how long does the procedure actually take? What's your time from hits the door to A-line insertion, from A-line insertion to inserting the robot. What are your mental barriers and systems barriers? When we are talking at the bar or whatever, we're talking, you know, in the cafeteria amongst ourselves, often it's not the mortality that's really grasping us. It's all the other things that go on with it. It's all the morbidity. It's not only the financial cost, but it's the patient cost. It's the cost if there's complications and detriments to quality life because of the complications of the robot. It's all those kind of things I think that need to be tracked in some way. And there you have it, folks. Let's cover some of the big takeaways from this episode. Chance talked about his journey in starting a Roboa program at his institution and gave us some important pointers. For one, maybe we should start considering earlier femoral arterial access in more trauma patients who have the potential to go downhill quickly. The trauma surgeon's role in placing and removing the device is absolutely key, but remember that trauma is a team sport. Get your trainees, nurses, and ICU team involved for the patient. One of the take-home points I hear from his PI process is that you need to have like a 360 view. You need to be tracking it. You need to be having discussions amongst your partners because there's going to be a lot that's not recorded in ones and zeros in terms of outcomes. It's going to be a lot of like the mentality of the surgeon in the bay and their decision-making process, the heuristics you use, and that requires registries and databases, but also conversations. When you're in the arena in the trauma bay, you got to make difficult choices. And the only way to get to the bottom of it is to have discussions to figure out what the hell we're doing. We want to thank Chance for joining us and telling us about his experience. If you want to check out more In the Arena episodes or other East products, including TraumaCast and CareerCast, visit East.org or wherever fine podcasts are found. East in the Arena is a product of the Educational Resources Committee and was created by Jeremy Levin, Mike Radomsky, and Sean Murley. This episode was produced by me, Sean Murley, and I hope you enjoyed it. Intro and outro music was created by Matt Holsmacher. We'll see you on the next episode.